Amen and amen. Thank you. I'm going to begin what I want to talk about this morning by doing something I almost never do. I want to read to you my introduction. I'm a teacher, I'm a preacher. I, I, when I first started in the ministry, I didn't even use notes because I didn't want to limit, I didn't want to get in my head. I wanted to preach what the Spirit of God had put in my heart. But I've prayed over this, I've searched over this, and this is what I have in my heart to share with you. I want to read this because I want to say exactly what I believe God's put in my heart and what is in my heart. And then I want to begin to talk about it. Over the last several months, we have seen as a nation and as a church the murder of three people at the hands of police officers or ex-police officers. Amawad Albury in Georgia while jogging, Breonna Taylor in Kentucky while in bed, and this latest, George Floyd in Minneapolis. And the only reason they were killed was the color of their skin. These killings have triggered a great expression of outrage, anger, and a demand for change, which we are witnessing. But if these deaths were simply isolated incidents, then they could easily be dismissed and dealt with as any other single crimes. But this outpouring which we have seen is the result of a nation that has not truly faced and taken the responsibility for the real problem. And the real problem is racism that is behind this. It's not just the brutality or the killings. It's an underlying attitude of one race towards another race of people that can be experienced as blatantly as these events or more subtly as an underlying fear or intimidation. Let us be clear. This is not just a problem. This is not just a national sickness. This is sin in the eyes of God. As a 74-year-old white male, I have had to begin to learn what this means for my black brothers and sisters. I've never experienced any of the fear and intimidation that they know. And as humans, we tend to interpret everything in terms of our own experience and from our own perspective. And unless we are willing to change our perspective and to listen, we will never change. And as Christians, we will have to answer for our unwillingness. This week I received a letter from three of our youth in response to the comments I made about these events last Sunday. This letter was very respectful. It was very articulate. It was very sincere. But it was also very direct. They were letting me know that I had not acknowledged the pain and the hurt that they were experiencing. And they were right. And their letter has started me to really examine my heart and what my life as a Christian is really about. I am very grateful for them, to them for caring enough about me to reach out. They have begun for me a process of trying to listen and understand, which is allowing the Holy Spirit to expand my understanding of what it means to truly be a Christian in this world and what it means to lead this church into a fuller understanding of what it means to be Christ's body in this world in which we live today. With this as an introduction and as a background, let me attempt to bring focus and clarity to this situation. First, to address this church so as to call us to our responsibility as Christians to truly love one another at a level that is deeper and more real than where we have been until now. Secondly, my purpose is to bring some clarity to the real issues. Satan uses confusion to hide the real matter, but the light of truth always dispels the darkness. Third, I want to set a vision for where we as a church need to go. This is a crossroads which can either divide us or become a more wonderful opportunity to fulfill why Christ has really called us together here. It is not my purpose, nor should it be, to address the concerns and agendas of every group or person that is on social media or has a voice out there. My responsibility as a pastor is to speak for Christ as best as my ability allows, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, first to this church, 
and then to our community. What I'm about to share with you has come out of examining my own reactions to these events and the challenge to my own Christianity that I'm finding. And the question is whether I am willing to allow the Holy Spirit to really bring these changes into my heart that will, fully, that will conform me to Christ. And that following what I have seen this week, as the following is what I have seen this week as I have prayerfully searched my heart and what I have seen of the church in general. Let us begin. First, our perspective. As a Christian, the only perspective we're entitled to have is to look at other people, to look at ourselves, and to look at the world situation through the eyes of Christ. When I invited Christ into my life, and I made Him my Lord, I gave up my right to have my own personal opinion about anything. Because I was joined to Christ. And when I was joined to Christ, I became one with Him. And so wherever I am, wherever I go, I represent Him in whatever I say and whatever I think. Just as 53 years ago, I married this woman. And when I did, I gave up my right to look at other women. I gave up certain rights because now she and I were one. I gave up my right to look at the situations of our life just through my perspective. And the times I have violated it and have been selfish, it's brought strife and it's brought contention. And the only solution of that was to be willing to put myself aside and to really come back to this union that God had formed in us 53 years ago. And the same applies to the church. We are joined to Christ, and so we can only see people and these situations through His eyes. And He's very clear on how He sees us and how He sees these situations. And the way He sees the world is different for the church than the way that He sees the world seeing itself. We have a much different responsibility than the world has. John 15, as Jesus is preparing to leave His disciples and birth the church and put this, this vision, this purpose into the hands of these 11 men. He gave them the marching instructions. He gave them the prism through which to look at everything and how to respond. John 15, 12 and 13. This is my commandment. Not my suggestion. Not my doctrine. Not my personal preference not my desire, this is my commandment. If you are my disciple, this is my commandment. And the thing about a commandment is there are only two choices. It's not an option to debate it. It's not an option to disagree with it. The only option we have is obey or disobey. When we decide to obey, I found that the, all, the, all the power and ability of the Holy Spirit is there to help us live out that obedience. When we decide to harden our heart and disobey, we cut ourselves off from that help. And we really open our hearts to other spirits that are out there that want to be division. This is my commandment, that you love one another, and then he set the standard, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than he lay his life down for his friends. And the things we're going to talk about today are a laying down of our lives. It's not taking a bullet for somebody else. Sometimes that's easier. But it's laying down our attitudes. It's laying down the hardness of our heart. It's laying down our desire to be comfortable and not be confronted with things that make us uncomfortable on all sides of this issue. To lay our lives down means to lay down anything that has to do with me and how I am affected by this and to be willing to allow Christ to use me to bridge a gap to other brothers and sisters. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay his life down for his friends. And then a few verses later in John fifteen seventeen, he said, This I command you, that you love one another. This love means more than a warm feeling or a sincere caring. And this is where God is challenging me. It challenges us at the very core of our selfishness and of our self-centeredness. Because to lay my life down for you 
means I've got to put aside my own interests, my own ideas, my own comfort, and my self-centeredness. Now, how does this apply with dealing what has happened here and what is going on behind it? How does it deal with it here? Galatians 6 verse 2 says we are to bear one another's burdens. Not just care, but shoulder the burden and help to bear it. And when we do, Paul says, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. The law of Christ to love one another requires us to bear one another's burden. Not just acknowledge it, but to bear it. Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. I want to read this. Because God is not requiring something of us that He has not already done. If this is what godly love is like, then God has already done that for us. This is talking about Jesus coming, God coming and taking on flesh like us. Hebrews 2 verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children, that's us, have partaken of flesh and blood, in other words, that we live in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise shared in the same, that through death He might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release, release those who through the fear of death all their lifetime were subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to the angels, but he does give aid or help to the seed of Abraham, and that's us. Therefore, in all these things, listen to this, he's been made like his brethren. Why? So that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. To understand the fullness of this, you need to understand what the Bible means by a priest. Not what churches mean. But a priest is a go-between, a mediator. A go-between between two groups that cannot normally reach each other, understand each other, or have contact with each other. And so what a priest did in the Old Testament, the priestly tribe of Levi, and we'll talk about them in a minute, and the priests themselves out of the tribe, they represented the people who were sinners and prideful and disobedient. They, he represented, represented them to a holy God. So he would go into the tabernacle bearing the sins of the people before God and presenting the blood of the sacrifice to God. So he represented the people to God, but then he would also represent God back to the people because until Christ came, there, was no, there could be no direct contact. So the priest stood in the gap. He was a mediator. But in order to do that, it says in Hebrews chapter 5 that the priests had to be chosen out from among men so that they could understand and relate to what it was like to be a man and represent him before God. But he also had to be somebody that was chosen by God, called and ordained by God to represent God to the people. That's what a priest was in the Old Testament. And when Jesus comes, he is the full embodiment of that. Because he was not only chosen by God to represent God to the people, but he was God that now came and took on flesh. But he became a man so that he could understand and relate to and share the burdens of people that didn't deserve even the time of day from God, let alone God to condescend and come and do that. And then he was able to represent them back through his own blood before God so that he can stand as our intercessor, our mediator between a holy God and us. But to do that, he was willing to come. And Hebrews 4 says, to be touched with the feelings of our infirmity. For him to take on flesh was to understand how you and I get tempted and yet he never gave into it. 
so that he could become a merciful high priest. So this is to show us that this love we're commanded to follow, that he has already set the example of, comes to identify with people that are suffering and struggling and take their burden on. First of all, to listen to it and understand it so he can help bear that burden for them. This is what this love is called to do. So in here, for me, first of all, to love my black brothers and sisters as Christ loves me, I have to be willing, first of all, to listen to their pain, their hurt, and their anger. And this is what that wonderful letter I got this week reminded me of. Because you see, as a 74-year-old white male, I've never experienced what they're experiencing. I've never experienced what many of you are experiencing. But that doesn't mean, and just because I can't fully relate to it, doesn't mean I can't listen and reach my heart out and try to share the burden of what that does to you. So to begin to love starts with listening. But I want to talk about what it means to listen because very few of us really know how to listen and especially very few of us males know how to listen. And every woman, if you didn't have a mask on, would say, Amen. (laughs) There's so many parallels between this situation and a marriage covenant. And we'll talk about that as we go on. So what I'm going to share with you about listening are things I've had to learn and I would love to tell you that I'm good at it. I'd love to tell you that I've mastered it, but my wife's sitting right over there and she knows better. But I've learned the principles. We're talking about listening, first of all. Listening means, number one, I can't argue. Because if I'm arguing my position, I'm not listening. We've all been in situations where we can't wait for the person to finish sharing their view because we've already got the answer prepared. We probably had it prepared before they started sharing it. That's not listening, men. It means, and this is even harder, while she's sharing, I can't be planning my answer. (laughs) So while somebody's sharing their hurt with me, I can't be figuring out what I'm going to say back. Because if I'm planning what I'm saying back, what am I not doing? I'm not listening. The only way I can listen is to open my mind, shut my mouth, and open my heart. Because that leads to the next step. Because Here's why this is so important. Well, say, why is it important to listen when we can't fully understand? Here's why. Because when you really listen to somebody and put aside your own interests and listen to them, you validate them as a person with value. My wife and I have had many conversations where I don't necessarily agree with her. I may not even understand her. Many times I may not understand her. But if I listen, what I'm saying to you is you are a person that's worthwhile for me to listen to you. You have value, whether I agree with you or not. On the other hand, when I don't listen, when I shut it off, when I have answers prepared ahead of time, I'm telling you, you don't have value to me. I know that I'm right and I'm more important than you are. Think what a message that communicates to our brothers and sisters. We're talking about loving as we're commanded to love. I thought of this this week. (laughs) You have somebody that is always available and wants to listen to every little issue in your heart and tells you to come and share them with him. It's your heavenly father. And while you're sharing when you may well be wrong, I had to get mad at him this week about something. I just had enough of a bunch of stuff that was on my plate. And it was an issue that came up with our dog, and that was it. That was the tipping point. I got upset at God. 
I'm not going to get upset at Molly. I didn't get upset at my God. I'm upset at God. I'm doing what you want me to do. Lightning didn't come down and strike me. An angel didn't come and open the word of God and begin to preach to me. This is where you're wrong. God listened to me. Imagine that. And he listens to you. He says, come and share with us. Why? What does it do when we find out God's actually listening? That's why answered prayer is so exhilarating. Woo! He's listening to me. He heard me. Why? Because it, it brings intimacy in the relationship. So listening's not a, not a thre- I had to learn. Listening is not a threatening thing in my marriage. Listening is a door to greater Im- intimacy and closeness and love. I've never really listened to her without getting some good feedback. And, but listening means more than just hearing. Listening, this is something God had to teach me. Listening means allowing my heart to be touched by her feelings. I remember one time... I remember right where I was. I was in the back of the sanctuary. The back of the sanctuary used to be where the sound booth is now. And she was singing in the choir that time. And I forgot, oh, I know, it was the second service, and I wanted to get out of here, and blah, 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 I don't know what it was. I was tired, I was complaining uh, just to myself about why she taking so long, or something. And God spoke to me so clearly back there. He said, son, you have no right to speak into her life about a situation until you've been willing to be touched by what it means to her. You have no right to speak into her life about a situation until you've been willing to be touched by how it mean, what it means to her. I'd love to tell you I've done that all the time, but it makes it even worse when I don't because now I know what I'm supposed to do. means being allowing our heart to be touched with their feeling. You may not understand it, but the fact that somebody's in pain, I can relate to that. Often Jesus was moved with compassion with the hurt that he saw. Over crowds he would be moved with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He wept over Jerusalem for how lost it was. He was moved by it. Hebrews 4.15, I mentioned it earlier, he's touched by the feelings of our infirmities. So if I really love somebody, and this is what challenges us, if I really love someone, then what they're going through is going to matter to me. So the first thing I've had to learn through this is in order to love my black brothers and sisters the way I'm commanded to, I have to be willing to really listen to them. Secondly, it's not enough to be touched by what we feel. But Jesus was moved to do something. These issues, to be touched by someone's pain, but not to care enough to try to relieve it, is not to truly care. James 2.20 says, Faith without corresponding action is not faith, and the same is true of love. For God so loved the world that He did something, that He gave His only begotten Son. However, we're talking about listening and hearing. In order to really listen, there are several issues that are prominent today that need to be put in their right perspective. And the reason is these issues may be real, but they distract us from hearing and facing the real issue, which is the racism. The first issue is violence, the violence that has come out of these protests. And I'm sharing these because these are things that in the past, when I've seen them, as a white person, these are the first things that come to mind to begin to have the answers while somebody else is sharing their pain. The violence that has come out of the protests. They have been, in some cases, they have been destructive. They have destroyed personal property. That's true. And in some cases, innocent people have been hurt and innocent people have died. But fo- focusing on the violence pulls us away from the real issue. And it can be a way of avoiding the more difficult issue. The reality is 
that the violence that has come out of the protest has come out of the protests. The protests have come out of the killings of these three people, and the frustration and the issue that they've not been heard. So, if there was no racism, there would have been no killings. If there was no killings, there would have been no protest. And if there had been no protest, there would have been no violence. So to look at the violence is to look at the fruit without looking at the root of the problem. So we have to be willing to get past the side issues, acknowledging that they're real, but don't allow them to become something to use so we can either, they can either distract us just because we don't understand the difference and we get caught up in the issue, or I'm more concerned that we can use those as a way to not really look at the issue. Because what often happens in a marriage when you get into one of these loving discussions <laughs> is, that, is that I don't want to hear what she has to say so I can show her where she's wrong about something else change the subject so I don't have to address what she's really saying to me. So my point is these are distractions, but they can also be smoke screens so that we really don't have to face and face the heart issue that's really involved. So the first distracting issue is the protest. The second one is a phrase that's out there that's become an anthem. Black lives matter. And I want to address this because I want to bring focus and clarity to this. Again, Satan loves confusion to confuse the issues. Because in most cases when we see the clear issue, we will agree on it. It's the confusion where it creates the contention. And it is this phrase that has become the focus of much conflict. Again, This issue can be a distraction from the real problem. The standard answer, and when Lafayette Scales was here several years ago, he addressed Black Lives Matter from the context of a conference he had been in. And I got pushback from some people afterwards, and it was kind of my thinking, and that's now the standard answer. Well, but all lives matter. Well, let's look at that a little bit and see how that brings some clarity to that. Because to do that really avoids the real issue. I believe every reasonable person, if you were to take it out of the context of the tension we're in right now, would agree as Christians, all lives matter to God. But here's the more difficult, because the answer is often, well, black lives matter also. But here's the real issue. That's not enough to say that. All lives matter can be a way of avoiding the real issue. Listen carefully. This is what God spoke to me this week. He said, if you really mean that all lives matter, and you're really sincere, then it should matter to you what your black brothers and sisters are going to you. But usually when we say all lives matter, we're not saying it because it really matters, we're saying it as a way of avoiding the fact, and what we're doing is we're putting a principle out there and hiding behind a principle. Sometimes it's labeled as reverse racism. And the truth is, it is. But here again, that becomes a smokescreen. Because it's, it, it is reverse racism, but here's the difference. In this racism, I'm not suffering. In this racism, I'm not intimidated. In this racism, I'm not living in any fear. It doesn't, this reverse racism doesn't really bother me. So they're not the same thing. And here's the difference. This is what the Lord showed me. Technically, it's true, but it avoids the real issue. Because by taking that position, I'm not allowing myself to feel the pain from this. The problem in these debates is that we're debating principles that may well be true. But Jesus did not command us to defend principles. He commanded us to love one another from the heart. And standing behind principles, and this is true 
not just in this issue, but in every issue, avoids us from doing what we're called to do, which is to love one another from our heart. Before I leave this subject, I need to make a distinction, though, and this is part of what confuses things. There are organizations and movements out there that are using this anthem, Black Lives Matter, not as a call to love and care, but as the anthem for an agenda that's not necessarily based on God's love, calling us to love one another. So when I make my remarks about Black Lives Matter, I'm not endorsing that. And Lafayette, when he was here two years ago, made that same distinction also. Again, Satan loves to confuse things. And so the remarks I'm saying this morning are not about... I don't know what those organizations' agenda is. I'm not supporting an organization. I'm supporting the command that Jesus has given to us as Christians. So let's talk, begin to talk about what is the church's responsibility? And specifically, what is this church's responsibility? I want to read a story to you because it really applies in this situation. Is everybody okay? All right. All right, good. Okay. All right, just wonder. This can be hard for some people to hear. All right, I know. I've already begun to go through some of this. Spitting on my notes. I want to get him back here, John. I've got to tell you up front, I don't like the beginning of the story. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up. God, why? And he tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So first thing we understand is this lawyer is not trying to find the truth. And this is another way to distinguish. Is somebody truly looking for the truth? Or are they trying to push an issue? He tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Boy, you would think that was going to get Jesus' approval. And Jesus said to him, this is just like a lawyer, he answers with a question. What, what is written in the law? What's your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus looked at him and smiled and said, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. You know, that's all Jesus, that's all God requires of us. You don't need to memorize all the law. You don't need to memorize the Ten Commandments. Just love the Lord your God. Here's the key. With all your heart, with all your being, and then love your neighbor as yourself. Now notice what the lawyer does here. And the key is in verse 29. But wanting to justify himself, and that's just what I've been talking about. When we deal with a conflict and we have brothers and sisters that are going through something and we, we don't want to, and we want to justify our position, we're doing just what he did. But you don't want to do that with Jesus because you will end up... <laughs> He will end up opening you up to show you the real issue. Wanting to justify himself, he said to Jesus, and this is just the way a lawyer thinks, well, who is my neighbor? What's he doing here? First of all, notice this. This lawyer had no issue with loving God with all his heart. That doesn't mean he was doing it, but he wasn't going to debate that issue. Why? Because you can't look at somebody and tell whether they're loving God with all their heart. It's hard to even look at yourself and tell you, tell whether you're loving God with all your heart. Because that's all in here. So we can all come to church, raise our hand. I love you, Lord. Tears running down our cheeks. You can't tell whether somebody loves God with all their heart. They may love the song. They may love the sentiment. They may be in love with their image of what God is like. But you can't tell from that. So this, he had no issue with the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Where did he have the issue? Who's my neighbor? Why? Because when we have to begin to take that love and give it to a neighbor, where we are in that love now becomes out in bold relief. 
And we will find out where we really are about loving God and loving one another. So what does the lawyer do? Just He's going to define boundaries around his responsibility of who am I required to love and who do I not have to love. That's his question here. And Jesus used a racial issue to blow the boundaries apart in this man's life. What happened? Jesus tells a parable. He said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And now by chance a certain priest came down the road. That's the pastor. Remember what priests do? They represent God to man, and they represent man to God. So they're supposed to represent God to men. Okay? He came down. By chance a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. That's what we've been doing. That's what I've been doing. It doesn't mean I don't love the Lord. It doesn't mean I'm not preaching the Word. But to this issue, I've been passing by on the other side. And many of us have joined me. Likewise, the Levite came down. The Levites were the, 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 the tribe that was responsible for taking care of the church, of the tabernacle. They were the helps ministers. When he arrived at the place and came and looked, he also joined the pastor on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, in order to understand what Jesus is saying, you have to understand, this is a racial issue he's bringing up, because the Samaritans were half Jew and half Gentile, and as a result, the Jews hated them, would not talk to them, looked down their nose at them, and persecuted them. And guess what? The Samaritans did it back to the Jews. Remember on John 4, when Jesus is sitting down at noon talking to a Samaritan woman, she's blown away that a Jewish male would talk with her. Why? Here Jesus crossed a racial line, not just a racial line, but a gender line, to reach out with his love to somebody that nobody even on his own team would have reached out to. So when Jesus says Samaritan to this Jewish lawyer, he is bringing in bold relief the point he's trying, he's making here. But a certain Samaritan had journeyed and came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and, on oil and wine, and he sent him on his own animal and brought it to him to an inn and took care of him. The next day when he departed, he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, in other words, he took out his visa card and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come, I will repay you. And so here's the question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, Him who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said, Go and do likewise. Christ came to exhibit the limitlessness and the sacrificial nature of the Father's love for us. And then when he left, he put that commission into the hands of the church to be the exhibit of the Father's love for people without any limits and without any boundaries. The church is His body in the earth today. And if we're going to grow as Christians and as His church, we have to be willing to be uncomfortable and challenged in our comfort zones. Matthew 23, 23 Jesus, now dealing with the religious establishments, this is another issue now, said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. He, you know, he wasn't... We think Jesus was, was, had this nice, soft way about him. These pictures of Jesus with a lamb over his shoulder and just butter would melt in his mouth. You need to read your Bible. I mean, he got mad in the, in the, in the outside of the temple and threw the money changers out. Cost them a profit. And he spoke to those that were religious hypocrites, and he spoke it just the way it is. And this is love. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, 
mercy, and faith. These you ought not to have done without leaving the first. The Bible has much to say about God's attitude towards injustice. Psalm 97.10, verse 10. You who love the Lord must hate evil. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord to reverence God is to hate evil. I did a little research. There are over a hundred verses in the Bible that talk about God's attitude towards injustice and how He hates injustice. And it's easy to sit in a church like this in a, in a prosperous community and many of you don't live in that situation. But you come here and it's a per- church to sit here and there is injustice in the world around us and to not be touched by it and allow it to move us when it moves God deeply. These are things we have to look at and be willing to change. So the Bible is telling us that we can't love God and not be moved by injustice. So what are we to do as a church? What are we to do individually? Well, it begins with repentance, as everything does. Repentance just means I'm willing to face honestly where I am and be willing to change We can't do that without the help of the Holy Spirit, but He can't bring the change if we're not willing to face where we are and be willing to have Him change. Repent for what? First of all, I'm just talking for me, for not caring enough to find out how this really impacts a good portion of this church. We need to pray. But prayer prayer is not enough if there's not action Behind the, behind the prayers. It, it, I just never heard of this. I never thought of this term before. It needs to be prayerful action and not prayer without action or action without prayer. It means, we mean, it means we need to find a forum, and we're looking at this, where we can have a chance to truly listen to one another. That sounds so simple that this, only, this begins by listening. But if we don't do that, then we won't walk this out together. And I want to begin to talk about where I see this church, the opportunity we have, and what I believe is set before us. I had the opportunity, the privilege yesterday, to go to a, a, a prayer meeting on the, on the steps of the, of the State House in Providence. And it was a prayer meeting that was called by inner city churches pastors. And there were a number of black pastors there, there were some Latino pastors there. I was the only white pastor there. And I, and I, I didn't want to go. It was Saturday morning and this message wasn't finished. I had a lot of things to do. I felt pressure. I just knew I needed to go. And it was so important to me. It wasn't like I didn't hear anything I've never heard before. But with this background of what God's working in my heart, I could see things in very different terms than I could see before because my heart was open. And then they asked me if I would share something and then I would pray. And what I shared was that I've had the privilege of pastoring a church where God has done something here that's not, not unique, but it's rare. God has brought together for over 40 years in this place a mixture of color and age and nationality and and, and, and demographics like I've never seen in any other church. Lafayette and many pastors that have come here have shared the same thing. Lafayette scales when he's been here and he says he has a multiracial church and he does. I've been in his church. But I've asked him, he said, oh no, it's, it's it's not like here. What does that give us? God has done this. But that's not enough. Because although we worship together, and although we greet each other, whether it's with a bump or with a high right now, or before with a big hug, our caring has not gotten to a level that Christ has commanded us to get to. And so we have an opportunity here that many churches don't have to take what God has built here on the surface and be willing to allow God to bring us together at a greater love for one another that's beyond a Sunday morning hug or a Sunday morning, a text every once in a while where we're really willing to bear 
one another's burdens. And that's a challenging opportunity for me and for most of us. But what I'm finding is I'm, as, I'm willing, as I'm willing to begin to step into it, that the Holy Spirit, that love's already in me. As we begin to open our hearts and allow that caring to come out, what you'll find is Romans 5, 5 is true. The love of God has been poured out on your hearts by the Holy Spirit. But unless we begin to give it at a level where we're not giving it, and I'm not saying nobody is, I'm talking about as a church. So these issues have the potential to divide this church and blow us apart. But they have a much greater potential to bring us together, not just in a unity that's outward with our words, but it's a unity of the love of Christ that He's commanded us to walk in. And here's where the the potential for that is so, so powerful. Jesus explained this. He's just finished washing their feet. And they were in shock. Because I've told this story before. We did a foot washing up here a number of years ago where they're in a room, a rented room. In most houses in those days, there was a slave assigned to wash your feet when you came in because people wore sandals and the result is their feet would be dirty by walking on the pavement, some of which weren't paved, and animals had come through there. So they had a slave. The lowest menial, jo- menial job of a lowest slave was to wash somebody's feet when they came into somebody's house. It was so menial, so commonplace, that most people probably didn't even recognize it was being done. So you walked in, you were greeting somebody, slave took your shoes off, your sandals off, washed your feet with a towel, with a wet basin, put your sandals back on, and then you went on about your business. But in this room, there was no slave to do that. And they didn't sit in seats like this. They reclined around the table so their dirty, smelly feet were in each other's face. And they knew that their feet had not been washed. And there was a basin of water and a towel there. And when they were finished... Jesus stands up, walks around, takes his outer garment off. He takes the, the, cloth, the, the towel and the basin and goes around and washes each one of their feet. And I'm sure you could have cut the atmosphere with a knife. And then he told them to go do that for one another. I heard of a pastor this week said, I don't need any more foot washing ceremonies to tell me that you love me. I just need you to listen to me. Then what did Jesus say right afterwards? In verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. There it is again. You also should love one another. But he adds this, By this the world will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The opportunity that we have as a church is to have an impact in the world around us, the community around us and the world around us by the love that we can have for one another. Because it's not how well people love each other when we look alike and we agree with one another because that doesn't challenge anything in my love for you. It's when I don't agree with you. It's when you have different issues, when you don't look like me, you may not talk like me, you may not eat the same food I eat but I can step across those barriers that are artificial and I can care about you and I can share with you. In a few moments, we're going to share communion. The word communion in the Greek word behind it literally means to share the same thing together, to experience the same thing together, to go through the same thing together. And this is what God has done for us by sending His Son to become one of us, to understand what we deal with when we deal with sin, and then to take the burden of it on Himself, pay for it Himself, so that we could be set free from our burden. And then, if we're willing to do that, then we can begin to have a voice out into that community. Because it's not enough to be gathered here together and have a love session with one another. 
Because the purpose of our being here is to take that love out there. There are people on the street corners that are preaching the gospel, but the heart of the gospel is the love of God for people. A love that doesn't just say, I love you, but a love that will lay its life down for one another. But the only way that can be experienced is by seeing people give that love to one another. I believe one of the ultimate purposes God has for a marriage, because what God does in a marriage, it, 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 <laughs> I, I argue with, this, with him for years, but he obviously won because he's right. In the very beginning, God created Adam. In Adam, I don't want to take time to go through this whole thing, but in Adam was the fullness of God's image, both male and female. I don't have time to explain that to you. But Adam had God's male, had, had God's male qualities and God's female qualities combined together. I believe Adam was happy. Why wouldn't he be? He doesn't have, to, he doesn't have to, anybody to tell him what to do except God. God said it was not good to be alone. So what did God do? He knocked him out and he pulled out of him half of him the female tendencies, the female sensitivities. And then he brought them together and said, get along. So now what God did is he took out of Adam a part that doesn't think like the part that's remaining. It says, for that reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Every other marriage after that, God takes two different individuals with two completely different ways of thinking. I'm rational most of the time. I think in outlines. Scary. I found out that did not work well in a marriage. I don't react to things very often. My wife is more emotional. She's more sensitive. I heard someone describe it this way. Men's minds are little bitty compartments so they can close the door to one and open the door to another and not be bothered by what's behind the other door. Women's minds are spaghetti, all tied together. And it's all affecting them all at once. I don't understand that. But I don't have to understand it to respect that she's different than I am. So I said to God when I began to say, God, are you just cruel? Well, you're not. Do you just enjoy watching us try to put this together? which obviously he, he probably smiles and laughs sometimes. And then I begin to see it. It's the blending together of the differences. It's requiring me to learn to listen to somebody that doesn't think rationally, that doesn't talk rationally. Not, I'm not saying never. That, that has emotions. I have no understanding what they, where they're coming from. And she's not that emotional. I don't mean that. But she's... She can... The other day... I don't know what it was. She was happy, I thought... And the next thing you know, she's in the kitchen crying. And it's like, what did I do? This is how men think. What, what, what did I do? I didn't say anything. Maybe I couldn't, should have said something. I don't know what I did wrong. Because men want to fix it. And the harder we try to fix it, the more difficult we make it. Why? Because we don't listen to what they want. We try to give them what we would want. But I've learned something in 53 years. It took me a long time. <laughs> so I went in the other room, in the kitchen where she was. I didn't ask her what was wrong. I didn't try to figure anything out. She was crying. And I just went over and I put my arms around her. And I let her cry. And I said, that's okay, just let it out. And I still don't know what it was. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because she cried it out and then she just looked at me and gave me a kiss. She just needed me to care, not to fix it. Now there are issues as a couple we have to learn to face, there are decisions we have to learn to face. And so there are issues that we have to face as a congregation. What do we do about the injustice? How, what's our role in this? Those are issues. But what I'm learning is I can't do that until we've begun the process of really caring about each other. Now for some of us, that may make, they may get frustrated with me. So well, you're not doing things quickly enough. I want to do things that last. 
I want to do things the way God's showing me to do them. Because I want to bring everybody along and say, we just march out there and go out there and do what we want to do. That's not going to necessarily produce the result. It's got to be a demonstration of God's love for people, not my agenda or your agenda or somebody else's agenda. Because as a church, that's what we're called to do. I want to read to you. I reached out to Lafayette who's been a, a voice into this church for well over 20 years. Whoops, that's the last song of message. Here it is. And he's very busy, but I know he cares about this church. And I'm going to read a poem. What he sent me was long. He sent a, a, a letter out to the pastors he has a relationship with. So because of the time, I'm not going to... Re- I'm going to read the part that really bears down on us. He starts out with this. So I asked him to ru- just ex- say from his heart what he would like to say to us today because I told him what I was doing. Faith Christian Center, dear Faith Christian Center, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I trust that this finds you on top of all things, on top with all things under your feet. I pray you are standing firm in faith making spiritual progress during these turbulent times. Then he included a section of what he wrote to pastors about basically what I've already shared about what's happened and, and, and how division, Christ, Jesus talks about division brings desolation and destruction. And then he addresses the killing of these three people. And then he goes to this. This is what he's really writing to us. What can a church and followers of Jesus do in times like these? Exodus 3, 7. And the Lord said, this is to the children of Israel that were in bondage, Surely I have seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians as to bring them up out of the land into a good land. So Lafayette says, First we can see their pain, we can hear their cry, we can seek to know their sorrow, and we come to the aid, and we can come to the aids of those in distress. He didn't know what I was going to preach this morning. In the parable of the sower, these actions are seen as compassion by our neighbors. Loving my neighbors as myself is godly. Second, we can listen. Listening is a great way to understand others' journey. Reflective listening is a great way to receive clarity on who they are. Reflective listening involves asking open-ended questions to probe deeper into what they feel. Tell me more what, what that's like. What do you feel? How, do you reach, how did you reach that conclusion? What is your personal experience? How did that event impact you? Seek to understand before being, being understood. Once these steps are taken place, you can decide further actions. These are two simple biblical steps that we can do to unite, become educated, and advance our community. We are in this together. You are in my hearts and prayers. In Him, Pastor Lafayette scales. He had no idea what I was preaching this morning. But the Spirit, I believe, was saying in Him the same thing. I really felt that what I want to do right now is I want to pray. I'm going to pray for us, for our hearts to be open. I want to pray for other pastors. I have purposely not done the Unite 714 prayer this morning. I wanted time to do this. I want to pray for the police because it's a small group that are the problem. I've been in a, in a group that people don't like very much. I was a lawyer. And not all lawyers are bad. And not all policemen are bad. The majority of them are putting their life on the line to protect us, and they need our prayers. But the ones, unfortunately, that get the attention are the ones who are not there for the right reason, and who this real issue that we're talking about today is at the part. And then we're going to share the Lord's table together, and I think that's an appropriate way to end. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ability to come to here today and freely worship together as brothers and sisters with different skin color, coming from different ages, living in different parts of the community, with different backgrounds, different nationalities. You have brought us together 
both those that are physically here this morning and those that are part of this community together online today. This is a work, a sovereign work that you've done. But Lord, now we're facing a challenge. We're facing a challenge that will either pull us apart or will draw us closer together. And we're calling upon you now to help each one of us to make that decision in our hearts. We pray for our brothers and sisters right now, Father, that are struggling, that are feeling the pain and the hurt of what's happened, and not just recently, but, the, but the, what's been happening throughout their lifetime and throughout so many years in this nation. That you would help, Father, them to, to communicate their pain and their hurt in a way that helps others to listen to them and to receive it. And we pray for healing, Lord, so that they can, we can move forward together. We pray for those of us, Father, that have not been impacted by this, that you would help us to recognize that if our brother and sister has, we have also. And the only reason we've not felt it is we've really not walked in the caring that we're called to do. So I come to you, Father, as a man of, of, a man of God. I come to you as the pastor of this church. And I repent before you of not caring more not seeking more to find out and of not doing more. And I ask you to help my brothers and sisters that are in the same place to make that same decision. And I ask you, Father, for the Holy Spirit to help as He already has been helping me this week because these are changes and adjustments. These are barriers that are in our hearts that are not easy to deal with from inside but need the help of the Holy Spirit to break down these barriers. And I pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters that are struggling, that as they see us beginning to try to listen, that you would help them to help us to come together with them. Father, I see, I believe by the Spirit, the tremendous potential that has been brought here by your Spirit. And now it's going to take an outpouring of your Spirit to do this work that I believe with all my heart you want us to do. Father, I pray for wisdom that I need, that our staff needs. And I ask our brothers and sisters to join with me to pray for that wisdom that we need, to know in the days before us the things we need to do, the things we need to change, and the steps that you would have us take as a congregation here at Faith Christian Center so that we can fulfill what you've called us here to do. We pray for our communities around here, the community in which this church exists, the communities in which each one of us live, and so many of us, so many of our members come from the city of Providence. We pray, Father, for these cities and these communities, Lord, that what's going on here, what you want to bring in the church, will begin to have an impact there, so that the love of Christ, the love of God that He has for people, the heart of the gospel will become tangible and seen and will begin a move of God that's been desperately needed for so many years. We pray for our nation, Father, not just to bring healing, not to ever let us go back to where we were, Father, but to force us to move forward, that you would bring the love of Christ, which is the only real answer to the root of this racism that that love of Christ would become so powerfully manifested through your church in this land that it would draw people into it and it would push back the darkness. Father, we pray for those, Lord, that have been the brunt of such anger. We pray for our police. Father, so many of them are serving out of right motives and and they risk their lives on the line to do what you've established law to do, which is to protect us. And we recognize that there are numbers of them, Lord, and they're the ones that often get the attention. That there are many of them, Lord, that that have, using the authority they have for selfish and wrong reasons. Lord, help, help your people to bring forgiveness. Only your spirit can do that. But we pray for those, Lord, that are defending us and protecting us. That you would keep them safe. Help them in their hearts to reconcile this conflict as they have to serve together, maybe with other members, other black members of their force. Bring healing to our police. 
And finally, I pray for the pastors of this area, Father, and the responsibility that they have to lead their congregations and navigate through this time of potential conflict to bring not just peace, not just unity, but a true unity. We are, we are one of one accord together, not just in mind, not just in principle, but in heart. And now, Father, as we prepare to share the Lord's table together, we ask you to do a precious work by your Spirit as you make clear to us what these emblems represent. That the bread represents that we are one body, not just with Jesus, but we're one body with each other. And that this cup represents the blood of a covenant. And as we drink this cup, it's as if we're drinking His blood and His blood is beginning to flow in us. And the blood